Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show working towards and educating about a true people's liberation. Um, I am your host, Josh. Uh, if this is your first time tuning in, thanks for stopping by. Um, I hope you enjoy. And if this is uh, you coming back, I'm glad that uh, I didn't suck so bad that you wanted to listen to me again. Um, that's incredible. Uh, my mom and the rest of my family uh, does not agree with you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so today we have a special one. Uh, today we have author and professor and philosopher uh, Jay Mufawad Paul, uh, Joshua Mufawad Paul, uh, also known as JMP. Uh, he has written uh, countless works uh, such as The Communist Necessity, uh, Demarcation and Demystification, and Continuity and Rupture which are three books that I highly recommend, as well as his uh, Austerity Apparatus and um, a few other works that are, are escaping me right now. Um, but go ahead and check those out. He's also a professor at York University uh, in Toronto, uh, I think. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, that is this is that recording. And I hope you folks enjoy and get something out of it. So without further ado, here's my interview with uh, Jay Mufawad Paul, JMP. Thanks. Alrighty. Hello, folks. I, uh, I would like to go ahead and introduce our guest today, uh, Joshua or Jay Mafawad Paul, uh, a fantastic author, uh, philosopher, and educator from Toronto, Canada. Um, Josh is a philosophy professor and received his PhD from York University in Toronto, where I believe he still now teaches. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, that's right. All righty. How are you today? Um, do, you, do you go by Josh, Joshua, JMP? I go by whatever people call me, but Josh is fine. <clears throat> All righty. I'm going to, one of us has to not be Josh. So would you mind taking the fall on that one? Yeah, yeah. Just call me JMP because, you know, that's what apparently everyone calls me on the internet. So. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. I'm, I'm sorry if you don't necessarily enjoy that nickname. I don't care. Okay. Um, so would you like to discuss your own story as to like how you came to be who you are today? Um, like your general path towards communism, um, as we all kind of have our own individual and unique story. I think it's sometimes fun to hear other people's. Uh, would you mind sharing that? Yeah, I mean, I can share a bit about it. It's stuff I've mentioned before. And, you know, I know that we're going to begin by talking about the communist necessity and that book kind of is in many ways, uh, you know, comes from having had a certain experience, like a political experience, right? Um, I guess, you know, I, I don't know, like, how far back I want to go, but I'll, I'll just say, I'll start with, like, just maybe with my activist life, like, starting, you know, being being in my undergrad and getting drawn to radical politics and, and the protest movement at that time, which was, you know, a lot of, it, like, the anti-globalization movement was really big at that time, 
there's also a lot of like organizing or not a lot, but beginning of organizing around like Palestinian solidarity that my partner was into. So I got into that as well. Um, I was in London, Ontario. And uh, I mean, I don't know, most of your listeners are probably in the US, so they won't know much about the small city that is London, Ontario, not the the cool London in the United Kingdom, but the the small imitated London (laughs) in Ontario. Um, That's just two hours away from Toronto. And it's not, there's not much of like a, a radical scene there. At least there wasn't when I, when I was there, it was mainly limited to the university. It was pretty conservative town, but still it was kind of the, you know, that period of time because of the anti-globalization movement, uh, because of just the experience of like the, you know, for me, like I, I lived through the end of the cold war, right. You know, I, I remember being old enough for when the, the wall came down. I know that makes me sound really old now. I'm in my forties, but I mean, I was, I was a kid then. Right. And, you know, I was subjected to a lot of anti-communist propaganda. So as was pretty common with my generation, um, if you wanted to be an anti-capitalist, anarchism was kind of the way to go because of how communism was perceived uh, due to that experience of, of, of the so-called, you know, failure of the Eastern Bloc and the, and you know, just the generalization of Cold War propaganda in, you know, Canada and the U.S. So, you know, I was an anarchist then, did kind of the anarchist stuff, you know, was involved. I, did, I wasn't at Seattle in 1999, but I was in Quebec City in, you know, 2001 and, you know, was there with, you know, with the, the whole those big FTA summit. Um, and so kind of went through the anti-globalization uh, experience of things. And then when I moved to Toronto, you know, got swept up in the anti-war movement, uh, which, you know, the kind of the anti-globalization movement morphed into that because of the... Um, because of the the invasion of Afghanistan and then Iraq, and, uh, and you know, it, it kind of just was was part of all these groups and organizing and yeah, eventually my experience and what I was studying and what I was witnessing and the people I was like you know ended up being in contact with, it just moved me more towards um, towards like communism. Um, originally it was like autonomous communism because I still wanted to keep one foot in that kind of anarchist way of being. And then eventually it moved through to kind of the going going back and reading Lenin and then reading Mao. Um, I mean, the, the Mao thing came about because I was also studying a lot of Fanon at that period of time and this kind of anti-colonial theory. And so I got drawn to like reading stuff like like kind of third world communist movements, which, of course, brought me to like Mao. And, you know, I had a, I also had like a, a friend and a comrade at the time who was you know, a Maoist from Afghanistan who was really instrumental in my politicization. Uh, but yeah, then it I kind of like moved through to being involved in stuff, supporting kind of like communist cadre building projects and things like that. And I moved away from that kind of uh, anarchist sensibility towards a communist sensibility. That's that's awesome. Um, so I uh, I can't imagine what it's I, I personally have yet to really make the break into activism as a lot of my, you know, radicalization came um, right around probably within the last two years. And most importantly, unfortunately, during uh, the pandemic. So a lot of, you know, activism, unfortunately, uh, that I uh, would like to be participating in is is kind of uh, not necessarily on pause, but a little bit more difficult. And then of course, just life gets in the way of these things sometimes. But that's that's incredible to, you know, hear people's story who like really endure 
and go and take part in these movements and meet people and really build those connections because that's all that our our struggle can be is at, at, at the beginning it can only be building those connections and it can only be uh, building those relationships with folks. So we're going to get more into it here in a little bit. But although those movements and things didn't necessarily uh, reap the intended uh, rewards, they they were good in that sake, I can say, as someone who did not participate in them. Uh, so really doesn't really have much to say. But um, I wanted to bring that up because a lot of my um, experience in like coming into my own, like I said, happened during the pandemic. So a lot of it has taken place through podcasts, chatting with people on social media, watching YouTube videos and stuff. Um, and one of those that really probably I'd say nine, 10 months ago, uh, really set me on my way down the road of Marxism uh, was your episode with uh, Brett on Rev Left about uh, continuity and rupture, uh, which is weird because to that point, I um, I hadn't really, that was one of the first Rev Left episodes that I listened to. I was looking for stuff on Mao. And so by searching Mao, of course, Rev Left popped up a lot because he does a lot of episodes talking about um maoism and stuff especially with you um and so that was kind of really like my first shot into marxism so i you know as you know i read um the communist necessity and then i read after listening to um continuity and rupture your episode um again about a month ago i went through and read the book finally and i'm i'm I want to I want to say that I'm done with it, but I would be lying to you if I did. I'm about 150 pages from the end. Um, but to this point, I uh, I've kind of skipped through some today in order to, you know, prepare for this interview. Um, and that really was what um, I guess radicalized me because it, it really brought a lot of the questions that some of us take years in activism or online you know agitation to come to the answers to but i kind of jumped right into the rabbit hole with that episode so like from the beginning that uh that the the kind of conversation that you had with brett and and marxism as a science and Maoism and the uh, world historical revolution that it, it, it stemmed, it finds its uh, roots in, I should say, uh, that whole sphere is kind of what was really my start into Marxism. Um, so that is kind of how I got introduced to you. But like I said, uh, today we're here to talk about um, the communist necessity uh, and uh, this has really been one of the best things that I've read during this pandemic. And that's saying something because I have kind of forced myself to read theory lately. Um, so just know that you, you are up against some good contenders. But 
This writing discusses many things from the failures and difficulties of past movements like the Occupy Wall Street movement or the 1999 WTO protests in Seattle. Uh, to also general historical inaccuracies and philosophical inconsistencies within many different groups in the general left in centers of capitalism. Um, so I wanted to first bring up the question, what exactly was your objective in writing this and what was it that you were intending to really convey? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean the, the communist necessity was, it was kind of a polemical clearing ground for me. Right. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned, I had, you know, when you asked me about my background um, in, in activism, right, I had spent years as an activist with the perspective that the book was criticizing. Like the book was really criticizing that kind of perspective of social movementism that the uh, that, you know, that those of us in the anti-globalization movement had at that time or, you know, and even afterwards at the anti-war movement. It, it's kind of a, a general trend of, of this idea that, you know, protesting and organizing um, with the vague assumption that capitalism is going to fall under the pressure of, of multiple and disconnected movements, right? Kind of the idea of like the not having a party anymore, being beyond that, and and all these social movements together, you just got to do the work, and and the, the pressure will cause capitalism to fall. I mean, so when I wrote this, I I really wanted to demarcate a radical communist position from the anarchisms and anything goes socialisms. As well as, you know, at that time, there was a lot of this big tent socialist coalition projects, like trying to build everyone into one big tent, which never worked because everyone never agreed and <laughs> always fell apart. And uh, because there was always just the lowest common you know, denominator of organizing, but everyone who came from it had all these different perspectives, like they, they didn't share the same theoretical perspective always. And, you know, I wanted to look at these things and, and ask the question that uh, that that if we take communism seriously as a necessity, I meant by that is something that needs to come into being if humanity was to survive, then what does that mean? And, you know, one big frustration that is, you know, behind the writing of the book or that motivated the book was seeing the same arguments being recycled and repackaged amongst activist communities. And, and it was almost like, a you know, having at that at the time that I'd written, I mean, it was like, it was like almost, it was a little bit less than 20 years since I'd been doing activist work, right? From being like really young, like in, since from 18 years old on, onwards. And I wrote that, I wrote The Communist Necessity, kind of the end of my 30s. Um, and, 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 and the big frustration that was there, as I just said, was that, you know, there was a kind of historical amnesia that was happening. Like people would, you know, make make the same mistakes and, and, and the, the same attempts to be made, the same different movements would, would build up and then collapse or, you know, lead into the same problems, the same attempts at big tent socialist coalitions fell apart and everyone would just try it again as if it hadn't happened before. And, you know, for example, at the time that right, right after, you know, right, sorry, not right after, but right before I wrote that book, um, I mean, that book was, you know, was published in 2014. So right before I was writing it, it was, you know, the time of Occupy Wall Street, right? And, 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 and the frustration I had there is why was this movement being seen as something new when to my mind it was a lesser version of the anti-globalization protests that you know i had been involved with and and also at the time why why were all these new theories of communism that were suddenly being spoken about uh just novel reiterations of older theories that that have been shown to have led nowhere at all and you know at the same time i was writing it i was also mindful and i you know i hope it came across in it uh, of the old and dry and dogmatic or, or revisionist communisms that persisted and offered nothing, right? You know, people that would show up at, at demos selling the newspaper of their tiny little sect and, and do nothing, right? And and so what I was trying to argue 
was that we should return to the thinking the great world historical revolutions of Russia and China and the theory that resulted from these movements in light of the sequence of people's wars from the 1980s onwards. And, and I, was, I was suggesting what I called in that, that book a new return to this revolutionary theory. And, and by making this suggestion and connecting it to the necessity of making communism, I was also attempting to demonstrate why various movementist approaches could not answer the call of this necessity. And so ultimately, it was, it was a polemical introduction, which is why I called it a prolegomena to continuity and rupture, which you say you're reading right now. Um, and, and continuity and rupture is kind of like, you know, it follows the clearing ground of the communist necessity. And in that, I, I, I go on to argue, and I should say much more soberly and rigorously than I do with the, the communist necessity, of why Marxism, Leninism, Maoism uh, fits the qualifications of, of the new return that, you know, I was talking about in, in the communist necessity. And actually, uh, you know, I've mentioned this before elsewhere, you know, uh, maybe even when I, when the book was released, I, I mentioned this in my blog. Uh, that, you know, the communist necessity, it was originally part of an early rough manuscript of, of continuity and rupture, but the parts that would become the communist necessi necessity, they clashed with the rest of that draft manuscript in terms of tone. <laughs> There's like much more strident, much more different style of writing, and it just kept growing as an introduction. So at first, I just I just cut it completely out, and I, I put the, the original version of that introduction on my blog. Um, but then I, there was stuff in that introduction by itself that I just wanted to expand separately. And so it became a separate project from continuity and rupture. And that's kind of the story behind it. That's, that's incredible. Um, both books, which I can say um, have really, you know, I'm very new to this uh, theory in general, but also just, uh, you know, communism uh, growing up as a conservative white kid uh, in central New York, communism definitely wasn't the center of my education. But these two books are, you know, incredible and have challenged me in many ways to really conceptualize communism as not some abstract thing that we want to achieve, but as, as uh, a necessity, as you say, that is actively being fought for even still to today. Uh, so, one thing that you have taught me through this writing and other discussions I've heard you on uh, is that there is a science to revolution, uh, revolutionary science, as it is normally called, uh, commonly falls under fire from groups who claim that Marxism or especially Maoism is not, in fact, scientific at all. Um, so I wanted to ask, first and foremost, why is it that Marxism is called a science and how can we defend this claim from those who might disagree? And then just to add to your plate, uh, similarly to Marxism's debate, philosophy generally also is not commonly given the title of science. Uh, some scientists today even go so far as to say that philosophy itself is dead. Um, so first and foremost, uh, why is it that we can say that Marxism is a science and defend that claim? And then also, how is it that uh, we can defend uh, that philosophy is not dead? And what is it that you have to say to that claim as a philosopher yourself? So, you know, much of my work since the communist necessity has been about thinking the claim made by Marx and Engels and, you know, followed through by Lenin and Mao and others, that historical materialism is the science of history and society and also connected to that, like the revolutionary science. 
and, and largely I've done this because, or I've been pulled into this or you know, found this interesting, is because a particular turn in academic Marxism that happened, you know, <laughs> like that happened, I guess, you know, decades ago, but also more, you know, the imperialist centers, it's been to suppress or deny this claim that, you know, that um, historical materialism is a science and dismissing it as, you know, meaningless or confused as if these theorists didn't know precisely what they were talking about. My questions have always been, why did Marx and Engels and Lenin and Mao and others claim that historical materialism was a science or claim the term revolutionary science? What does it mean if we, and, and also, you know, like, I, I guess, yeah, too, what, what does it mean if we honestly think, think through such a claim? And what do we give up if we relegate historical materialism to one social theory among others uh, that is no more or less scientific? And I've come to think these are important philosophical questions, which I is why I spent a lot of time writing about them. But, you know, I, I don't, one of the things, I don't want to go into much detail here about repeating why, like, because there's a lot, there's like book size level of things to say why this is a science, right? Because I, right. I summarize these thoughts on other interviews, um, and a really good one is the one I did on Revolutionary Left Radio about Marxism as a science of revolution. And, uh, but I, I want to say here that the term science now has come to be associated with the so-called hard sciences, when actually when you look back in the, the time of Marx and Engels, uh, they, they called historical materialism as a science because there was a different understanding of science and what I think is a more robust understanding of science. Science as, you know, a theory that demystifies the object of its thought. And in the case of historical materialism, the object was history and society. So it was scientific in that it demystified history and society and explained history and society according to uh, materialist terms. So just as biology attempts to think biology in biological terms, um, just to cite one example of the so-called hard sciences, historical materialism thinks history and society in demystified historical and social terms rather than appeals to the supernatural so as to, under, uh, sorry, so as to uncover a general law of motion and in the case of historical materialism, that general law is class struggle. And in continuity and rupture, I, you know, I, I went for, I, I mainly focused on attempting to demonstrate how this law of motion resulted in Maoism. And in critique of Maoist reason, I attempted to show how historical materialism as a whole can be seen as following the same kind of scientific patterns as the so-called hard sciences. And, you know, and I mentioned that Rev left uh, radio interview about it. That had to do with uh, my essay, The Ruthless Criticism of All That Exists. And in that one, I argued that if we give up the claim to scientific rigor, then Marxism is no more meaningful than any other social theory. But what I do want to note here, what I think is more interesting way to, you know, kind of talk about your question and, 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 and you know, and, and highlight something that I've only barely mentioned other times, too, but I'll, I keep coming back to and, and I guess as a point of annoyance with me is that, you know, I find it very interesting that there is an antipathy even amongst Marxists. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about Marxists, the Marxists that have a problem with this, right, um, as ones that are in, you know, first world university settings or even just first world settings, but they have this antipathy in, in taking this claim to science seriously. Like, so, you know, on the one hand, right, there are those Marxists who think uh, the claim of science should be abandoned, right? And that's the ones I, I mentioned, the kind of academic Marxist ones. And largely, I think that's because they've fallen under the spell of the claim to science that the so-called hard sciences make, and they can't see how historical materialism could analogously be the same. 
In fact, they're 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 horrified by the suggestion. Usually, like, look, you know, when when <laughs> when the Communist Necessity was published, my former MA supervisor. I mean, time now I'd already finished my PhD, so this is many years later. But my former MA supervisor contacted me, and and, and was actually you know really upset that I was using the term revolutionary science. <laughs> and he was a Marxist, right? He did not like that. Um, uh, and I don't think he, he just read the communist necessity. He wasn't, but it just already, there was this kind of feeling that you shouldn't do that. Right. But on the other hand, you know, there are also those Marxists who do use the term science, but they aren't interested in thinking what that means. And instead they just make multiple dogmatic pronounce, pronouncements about science that are really not scientific. And, and I think it's those kinds of Marxists that end up confirming the fears of those who want to reject the label and those who want to reject the label can fear the fears of the dogmatists and just goes around and around and around. So I, you know, I really, one of the reasons I wanted to kind of get in there and, and think what it means uh, to, 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 to name, uh, you know, historical materialism as science is to kind of cut through that, this kind of spiral of um, a bad understanding of science. Also, you know, Sylvia Winter wrote, this is, you know, the thing I've been thinking about that, uh, like she wrote that, you know, quote, while, while the natural sciences can explain and predict to a large extent the behaviors of non-human worlds, the disciplines of the social sciences and humanities remain unable to explain and predict the parameters of the ensemble of collective behaviors that are instituting our contemporary world, end quote. And, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of Winter's project here and the ways in which she points out how even the natural sciences get bogged down by predatory social relations. But I think that historical materialism, if understood as a science, can and will be able to explain and predict these parameters she's talking about. And reasserting the importance of historical materialism as a science, but one that listens to theorists such as Winter and others, answers her call for explanation. And, you know, it's my contention that historical materialism has indeed provided explanations and predictions of the con contemporary world, just as the natural sciences have explained and predicted the non-human world. And we give up a lot when we dismiss this claim to science. But as for defending this, I mean, I think this is largely, it's defending, it's, it's just about defending whether or not communism is correct in general as well. I mean, that defense comes through an organized movement. Otherwise, the defense of it is just, you know, people writing about it and defending and arguing that claim. And so I can, I can do that as a philosopher and, and philosophically like lay out why I think it's a science and argue against those that wouldn't. And I know people have responded and dismissed my claims to it. And um, and yeah, and and, and I, sometimes I think not well, like they haven't read the argument or anything like that. But in, you know, defending that is, is important in one way, but I think as in most claims in any kind of communist movement, the strength of the defense just happens in, you know, if the movement itself is strong. And it's not that we necessarily have to really defend the notion that it's a science all the time. We just have to demonstrate it and follow it scientifically as communists and follow that kind of thinking in order to make socialism. Now, the philosophy question, that's <laughs> just a big, that, that's a big one, right? Uh, because it's, I, again, I, I write a lot about what, what is the meaning of philosophy, right? Um, and, you know, I, I gotta, you know, not to shamelessly self-promote, but I do have a book where I do talk about the meaning of philosophy, um, which is called Demarcation and Demystification. And that was probably one of the most abstract books I've written so far, like less concrete. But what I argue in that book and elsewhere, and also I think it comes through in, in Continuity and Rupture that you say you're reading right now, because I actually was writing a demarcation and demystification at the same time 
as I was writing uh, continuity and rupture. So there's kind of a bleed over of that way of thinking. And, and, and my position and a position that I've constantly upheld is the claim that philosophy tails theory and especially scientific theory. Philosophy is not science, right? Um, philosophy's role is to make sense of the world, which also means exploring what it means to call something science, among many other things. And as for it being dead, well, it's only dead if humanity dies, right? Because philosophy is about thinking. Right? It's about thinking thought. It's about critical thinking. Um, and that's what every human is capable of. Um, so, you know, I've said before many times that the claim that philosophy is dead or has reached its end, that's that's actually a philosophical claim uh, and not a scientific claim. It's it's a it's a philosophical claim because it's just meant it's put forward on the same same way. It's, it's a philosophical wager. It's, it doesn't really say much. It's not something you can put under a microscope or look at in a lab. Right. Or prove through like social action. Um, and, you know, it reminds me here, like Badu once pointed out that philosophers and scientists have made this claim about philosophy's death multiple times. And all that it proves, he points out, is that people are trying to make philosophical claims about reality, right? That's it. And, you know, I mean, it's like, I, I, I you know, recently, this, this question is funny because I don't, I don't know if you saw it, but, you know, recently conservatives were making the same claim about science killing philosophy. And then there was this hilarious intervention of MC Hammer tweeting about philosophy being needed for science. <laughs> that was kind of funny. Hammer <laughs> of all people. Yeah. I can't believe the world that we live in. That that's amazing. Um, I um, so I, I asked the question, of course, because uh, as a Marxist who is in uh, spheres with non-Marxists, of course, you know, and as someone who has spent the majority of their time, unfortunately, online, you know, Marxism as a science is uh, something that I personally you know at least have conversations about but you are correct the the way to test that science is you know the the strength of communism as a movement and i think that the fact that after you know almost a century of anti-communist uh propaganda and militancy and organization in all the centers of capitalism and yet still this re-emergence and this uh you know yearning towards Marxism, uh, or at least in general, you know, I, I'm not a fan of this term, but we'll use it here, uh, leftism, um, kind of shows at least the strength of communism as a necessity. It can't really necessarily show the strength of communism generally, because in a lot of ways, especially in centers of capitalism, as we've discussed already, uh, communism hasn't been able to solidify itself in any kind of organized form uh in in many cases and so it's 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 hard to test that but in the same way there are people's movements all over the world as you discuss uh in your book the communist necessity and in your book continuity and rupture and on your blog and just about everywhere um that are actively proving the strength of communism and showing uh what revolutionary science looks like um but, you know, as, as someone who is moderately new to theory and philosophy, uh, many ask, why is it that, you know, theory is so important? You know, you talk about philosophy as trailing theory um, and also uh, as, as not a science, but just demarcating and demystifying the world and, and showing people how to, as you say, um, think thought. 
but there are those folks who say that we can just infer these things and use our common sense. I mean, we all endure uh, these problems. We all go through these struggles. So why is it that we need someone to, to write a book about it uh, and tell us, you know, what it is to to think? And if that isn't the case, how then do we convince people that theory is important without, you know, being overly assertive or domineering as some people both online and in person can be? Well, I mean, I, mean, I might first say that it has nothing to do with, with someone writing a theory about it. I'm always suspicious of, of, of someone that um, comes up with like a new revolutionary theory by themselves, right? I mean, that's one of the things that I was kind of pointing out in the communist necessity. I don't, I don't create theory. I, I'm, I'm, I do philosophy, which is I think through theory that already exists, right? And, and mm -hmm. try my insights to that. Um, and even then, I, I'm, I'm mindful of the mistakes I can make and that sort of thing. The theory that I, you know, I see is relevant and that I, you know, see as the, the theory that um, that we should pay the most attention to is uh, the theory that is, is, is comes out of mass movements and, and revolutionary movements and out of struggle. And usually the, the person writing something like that, they, they, they tend to be someone that is, you know, represent representative or almost like a cipher of a mass movement themselves right that they can that can they can call and make the critical comment of the theory and develop it but they themselves are like just you know they're not they represent a collective process right so you know so why do i think theory is important in general um well you know, not to be that guy, but Lenin said that a revolutionary movement requires revolutionary theory. Uh, I'm not going to leave it at that, though, because that's the dogmatic position. <laughs> the question is why he said it, right? And, and you know, the point is, for him is that, you know, a revolutionary movement, it requires theoretical unity um, in order to, like, to suddenly know, like, make a concrete analysis of the concrete situation, move forward, figure out what's going on, how to organize, all that kind of thing, and also just figure out, make almost like a diagnosis of what the problem is in order to remedy that problem, right? Um, so the point is that a revolutionary movement requires theoretical unity, as I said, but it's achieved through investigating the concrete circumstances and providing a concrete analysis rather than an anything goes approach. So, you know, I, this is also one of the meters, like I like reading a lot of social theory that is not always, you know, Marxist as well, because that's, you know, how you study, you study a lot of things, shouldn't be dogmatic and, I mean, the great, the great historical materialist theorists read a lot and learned a lot from things that weren't necessarily Marxist either. So I like reading a lot of the social theory. There's a lot I've learned from it, but I, I always, I always like my, my, my meter for understanding it is, is how much of this theory is connected to the person being involved in a movement and how much of it is a concrete analysis of a concrete, uh, of concrete circumstances, right? That they're actually really being able to demystify the, the, the circumstances that they're in. And it's not just some eclectic anything goes approach. And so the stuff I usually like from a lot of this theory is the stuff that gets closer to that and the stuff I tend discarding or, or that I, I dislike is the stuff that moves out of that, that qualification, right? And again, again, this is probably because of that notion of science that you know, I brought up and why it's important. Because if you look at the analogy of the scientists, right? The scientist just doesn't make things up in their lab and spontaneously assert hypotheses, right? The theory they produce um, is it proceeds rigorously uh, otherwise, they'll end up with pseudoscientific claims, as the history of science has shown us that there's, there's been all these pseudoscientific claims, of course, generated by ideology and other things like that, that haven't been able to provide concrete analysis of concrete circumstances. So, you know, on the one hand, this analogy of science is important because it, you know, it can provide 
um, you know, people who say, well, why, why, why is theory so important? And they mean social theory. And then you'd be like, well, would you say the same thing about like the theory that's produced in, you know, from biology or physics, right? That gives us, you know, certain things that we, we, we use today, right? It is important to have theory in that sense. It is important to have scientific theory that results in, you know, vaccines and things like that, right? Um, you know, just to bring it to the pandemic. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, right, uh, we go back to kind of the social theory. It's, it's important to also understand, you know, theory and the kind of theory I like as, you know, as something that unfolds over time, right? And then we stand on the shoulders of movements that have developed concrete analyses of concrete situations and an unfolding theory, one from making revolution, as well as determined by revolutionary movements that failed. So we can learn from the successes and failures, and this should contribute to a theoretical outlook rather than a spontaneous make things up as you go outlook. The theory that is important is this kind of theory and other theories less important. And the reason why I, you know, I'd argue we cannot use our common sense, right? It's just as if we just have this is because common sense is infected by ruling class ideology, right? Like we're raised to have uh, bourgeois sensibility, even if we don't come from the bourgeois class, that those kind of uh, values are, you know, the, the predominant values in the society, right? Um, it's like, it makes sense in the society to be individuals struggling against other individuals because that is how one survives in capitalism. And if we rely only on this common sense without realizing how common sense is predetermined by ruling class ideology, then we will just be reasserting the world as it currently is. I mean, it's common sense to think that you can't change the world, that communism will always fail, this sort of thing. That's, that's the kind of thing where people say it's just common sense all the time, right? And it's like, these are the kind of things that they say they're led to by just thinking with their own common sense, right? And it's it's also kind of like this, a very, a very conservative view, right? I mean, conservatives who do not like academia in any kind of way. I mean, first of all, there's a good left-wing critique to be made and a you know, communist, anarchist, whatever, critique to be made about uh, academia and its, and its connection to, to ruling class power and the state and things like that, for sure. But then there's a bad reactionary critique. And that critique is that, that anyone that's done any learning is suspicious and our own common sense and our opinions are the same as truth, right? And that, and that kind of view is like, don't tell me, like they'll make these people make claims about science and then get angry when scientists correct them and they'll be like, well, you're just a, you know, an ivory tower person or something like that, right? So, I mean, that, that kind of common sense view, it, it, is, it is a very, the thing you can rely on that is a very conservative view of the world. Um, anyhow, all of our struggles will be within kind of uh, this world of, of common sense um, and this world of, of bourgeois thinking if we don't use theory because we have refused to theorize what this world means. And, and that kind of refusal will largely forbid thinking what this world is um, according to the way it has been theorized by past revolutionary movements. So, you know, I, I, am, I am a strong believer in the tool of critical thinking, and I believe this tool can be sharpened with logic and reason. Uh, everyday common sense is such that just trying to do that critical thinking um, without studying stuff as well, because critical thinking says you should study other stuff, but like just believe you can be this critical thinker and understand logic and reason just through your common sense. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't cut it, right? That's, that's the kind of thinking of people like Ben Shapiro, <laughs> who, who say facts don't care about your feelings, then they get really upset when facts are given to them, right? It's like they, they, their common sense facts are not necessarily facts. Um, in any case, uh, liberals and conservatives like to claim 
that the confirmation of their perspectives of capitalism are reasonable and logical. And they like to bludgeon this into our minds day in and day out. Uh, as for convincing people that theory is important and not domineering, again, I think it's like trying to convince people that it's important and that it's important to study it. That That's a question that needs to be done within the bounds of an organized movement because it hardly happens at an individual level unless someone's trapped in, by, with me in a, in a course at York University or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... Um... I ask, you know, of course, because there are those of us who engage in conversations with, you know, anarchists, or um, I was uh, familiar with some folks in the IMT who, you know, very heavily discouraged me from uh, engaging in any theory, of course, past uh, most, if not all, of Lenin's work. Um, and uh, so I, I'm aware that there are those folks who are in these popular spheres, who are in, you know, uh, positions where they are in it, able to influence people away from reading, as you, you know, say, social theory because of, you know, these claims that a lot of times you hear the, the claim that it's, it's, it's just all dead white guys. So who cares, you know? But I, I think that, you know, I, I even brought it up to my grandma the other day. Um, there's a reason why they wrote this stuff down. You know, it's not like this is just uh, oftentimes some some dude in his basement who is just writing his ideas down. Um, it You know, Marx and Engels were actively engaged in struggle. Lenin was a part of the uh, revolutions of 1905 and 1917. Um, Mao, of course, led the Cultural Revolution, was a part of the Chinese Revolution. So, like you say, um, this theory is oftentimes, um, just like your book, Demarcation and Demystification, it's it's taking the process of revolution and making it an, an attainable one and an understandable one in a lot of ways. And also, as you pointed out, these theories are particular to the movements in which quite often they are a part of, you know, Marx and Engels are often critiqued of not discussing enough about uh, the um, imperialism of the global south and things like that. Well, they maybe, you know, and then you you can't expect that this group that wasn't actively taking part in that struggle who calls themselves materialists and does not theorize on anything that they cannot, you know, actively observe or struggle with. Um, they're going to write about this this third world, or I should say, the globalization and the imperialism of the third world. Um, and then there's many different theorists who suffer, you know, other critiques of being, you know, racist, sexist, of missing uh, points of talking about certain topics that are of importance now. And I think that it, it's crucial to understand that the the theorists that we that you especially advocate for reading are folks who are act like I said actively engaged in that struggle and so their theory is a true test of that that revolutionary science it's it's through the process of class struggle that they are coming to these theories um, but you know theory is a difficult topic for a lot of leftists again using that word um, but it, it's mostly difficult because a lot of people have a hard time reading it and understanding it. Um, 
so I, like many others, find uh, podcasts like this or YouTube and other secondary sources to be extremely useful in that way. Um, but I wanted to ask you, because I've used a lot of these sources for help along my way, um, do you feel that often these secondary sources are more helpful or more harmful? And how can we be using these tools um, to better help spread the message and help educate people on these sometimes difficult to understand ideas? Um, to contextualize this question, I just really, because when I was writing this question, I, I was reading State and Revolution. Um, and so this seemed poignant to point out. But Lenin, after uh, Kautsky published The Dictatorship of the Proletariat, went back and, you know, read all of Marx and Engels' works that he could to point to the direct misinformation and quote-unquote misquoting that Kautsky did in his work, which led to opportunism and especially inconsistent ideology in the German Social Democrats. Um, so by doing that, Lenin was able to show the importance of knowledge and understanding Marxism from the words of those who formulated and theorized it themselves. So the reason I ask is because I worry, um, is it, you know, as I asked, more helpful or more harmful? Well, before I answer the question about, you know, YouTube and secondary sources and whether or not they're helpful, there's something you said earlier that I just want to home in on, first of all, which was, you know, the, the claim about, um, these these theorists in the past like making mistakes and 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 I, I think it's important to, to point that out as historical materialists about the things that that um, the past you know the people like Marx and Engels or whoever got wrong um, and 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 not and not and not and not dismiss it simply in the same way that you know like liberals and conservatives will be like well back then that was just the way everyone thought I mean obviously we we demand more. Out of, out of historical materialists and other people, out of revolutionaries and other people. And so I think it's it's quite, you know, part of part of the thing that makes like historical materialism, like the method, like a revolutionary method is that there, you can understand why Marx and Engels were wrong and you can critique them using historical materialism, right? The reason that Marx and Engels were Eurocentric is because they are, you know, because social being determines social consciousness. And as much as they tried hard to think outside of that box, they were socialized still by being in kind of the, the, the centers of the emergence of, of global imperialism, right? And so they can be critiqued for that. And I think that's that's an important thing to understand more than just like saying, dismissing the fact um, that, you know, that, you know, they, they shouldn't be held to account because they were just, you know, products of their time. I think that, you know, historical materialism says we can explain why they were products of their time and we, we can critique their errors and, and correct them as science does correct itself as it develops, right? And that was just a thought as a side point from what you're asking about, about podcasts. And so I'll suddenly shift gears to talk about this and, and podcasts on, on YouTube and, you know, and on all these other secondary sources. Look, I, I, I think like I'm completely of the mind that all forms of media can be useful for propagating Marxism. I think definitely the bourgeoisie uses these tools to propagate its ideology all the time. Um, just as, you know, stuff that is, I mean, there's, there's this kind of uh, a kind of a puritanical theory uh, that says, you know, all of these tools, since they were made by capitalist social relations and they, you know, they're owned by capital, then then we shouldn't use them because they're all automatically going to be used against us, which is actually a, a very non-dialectical way to think about it because um, just this is <laughs> things that are made 
by capitalism are exactly what have been used by workers' movements against capitalism in different ways, right? Um, you know, it's like you know the, the cap that you know the, the whole the whole you know arms arms manufacturing is a very capital capitalist enterprise, but obviously revolutionaries snatch those guns away <laughs> and they use them, right? Um, and so it's you know, it, and also you can just say that the a lot of the, the coding and all these things they're also were done by people that were workers as well right it's not like just like capitalism made them inside of it but you know just to get back to it, the point is that it's it, all of the i think any media can be useful for propagating capital uh, sorry, not propagating this very is very useful for propagating capitalism by the ruling class but for us it, it is useful for propagating marxism as well and so I don't think the mediums in and of themselves are harmful. They can always be helpful. But I think that, that there's a larger problem here. And that's that there's a lot of noise out there. And so it's it's hard to find. And obviously the people that produce good, like left uh, podcasts or YouTubes or, you know, whatever kind of social media draw they have that, you know, come from a, a radical, uh, you know, anti-capitalist perspective, uh, they are, you know, and that are, and then also produce good work. They aren't going to have the same resources as, you know, other people, right? And people tend to be drawn to like the stuff that is like, you know, the the common sense ideology, the stuff that confirms bourgeois ideology in general. And also, there's so many people claiming to be experts. And if people are looking for answers online, they're going to encounter a labyrinth of opinion. So I think largely, I mean, these tools should be used. This kind of ideology should be propagated as much as it is, right? Obviously. Um, but I think at the end of the day, um, what will make them stronger is when they're connected to actual organizational practice. And rather than primarily seeking random internet adherence, um, they're kind of concerned with providing the people they organize on the ground with resources, as well as channeling people they engage with online into organizational spaces. Um, this, of, of course, requires a much stronger level of organizing than we have right now in the centers of capitalism as a whole. Uh, but, I mean, you see this is kind of the way that if you look at the People's War in the Philippines, like they use, uh, you know, a lot of social media and stuff quite cleverly. Um, but it's all tied into an on-the-ground movement, right? So, I mean, they don't—they don't necessarily care if you know uh, if, if there's you know their stuff is being dismissed by ruling class channels. They care about finding people they can channel into being organizers, right? And this is goes back. I mean, all you know. I mean, you were mentioning Lenin um, about you know him going back and studying Marx and Engels. But let's look at what he what he also said uh, about about the communist newspaper in his time. Um, and, his, and he has this, you know, famous, this very short uh, article called like where, where to begin. And in that article, he argues that the communist newspaper is an organizer. And obviously it's of the time because like newspapers, this is, I mean, this is the problem. This is that nowadays everyone is, reads this, who is a, a very, who are in sectarian dogmatic organizations. And they're like, we just have, we have to have a, a print newspaper and we have to hand that out to rallies because Lenin said, the communist newspaper is an organizer, but you got to look at, I mean, at the time that he was writing newspaper was the main spread of news medium. Right. And so he, you know, he saw that a kind of idea of having some kind of social media, the social, the prime social media of his time as an organizational tool. And it wasn't meant to be something abstracted from the movement of making revolution, but it was supposed to be embedded in an organizational context. Yeah, so I definitely agree, and I think that you know your your referencing to newspapers is is quite um, on par with what I was talking about earlier, having to do with the IMT. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of folks who fall into different forms of dogmatism. Those of us 
who, uh, you know, commonly fall into, and I hate to throw this term around, but LARPing um, is, it's difficult to um, fight that, that tendency because, you know, like you say, that's what Lenin says. So what the hell, who are you to tell me that I shouldn't listen to what Lenin says? But again, like you say, we, if we're also historical materialists, then we also understand that, like you said, that was the main spread of uh, news media at the time. Um, but I, I want to say that your text, The Communist Necessity, in my opinion, uh, does a fantastic job of succinctly discussing this very point of why a principled understanding of these you know, philosophical mistakes, of organizational failures, uh, is really crucial. Um, so then, how is it then that we can learn from these movements of the past and organizations? And what can we do going forward to avoid these pitfalls and mistakes? Um, and also, why is it so important that those of us in privileged places like America and Canada, also known as centers of capitalism, uh, begin to take to heart the failures, pitfalls, and theoretical misunderstandings of those before us and use them to help inform our current movements and organizations? Well, <laughs> we can learn from these organizational failures by reading about them and studying them. You know, at the same time, we should be doing social investigation amongst those masses that these organizational failures could not organize so as to understand what went wrong. And also, you know, and this is, you know, the term, we should be putting politics in command, especially the politics learned from the theory that has unfolded in those communist movements that have been more successful, right? Um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, goes back to trying to, if we want to understand how to, you know, organize in a certain context, we should do social investigation very strongly. So understand what the forces are there um, and, and make sense of, of, of the failures in the past uh, that, that have happened in, the, in those spaces. Uh, as for why it's important for those of us who live in you know, Canada or America or the UK or you know, any of the imperialist metropoles, the centers of capitalism, uh, why it's important for us to take uh, these lessons seriously. Um, is because the fact that we reside in the so-called belly of the beast is meaningful, right? We need, we, we really do need to make work to make revolution here and not act as if we can just drift by with the global peripheries doing all the work. Uh, because the reason things are sometimes easier for us here is because of imperialism. And I, I want to be clear, not for all populations, right? Um, you know, the, the colonized, uh, you know, the colonized in, because Canada and the U.S. are both settler capitalist formulation, uh, sorry, formations. So, um, the indigenous population is, you know, it's going to not be the same as other people. Um, and also in the U.S., the former plantation populations, um, they don't have the, they, they don't have things easy in, in North America. I, and I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't just say the U.S. with former plantation populations because although Canada didn't have a plantation system, we still do have like a large amount of uh, immigrants because of Canada's connection with global trade with the Caribbean slave trade. We still have like a whole connection of immigrants that came from from those plantations in Canada as well. So <clears throat> I just want to be like, not, not all populations get to drift by as easily. And there's, there's definitely stratifications, but I think um, we, we really do need to get things right here and, you know, and, and not fall into the movementist kind of thinking that doesn't take our situation seriously. I agree. So 
we're running a bit short on time, so I want to cut kind of a few questions, but I, I do want to hit on this. Um, so Amazon workers right now are voting on whether or not to unionize in Bessemer, Alabama. There's general strikes in countries all over the world. Um, with COVID-19 running rampant still in a majority of the world as well, when we look in, at all of this, uh, it's it's hard for me to see a world where capitalism is fully in control anymore. Um, but then I also recognize the general miseducation that people have. And I wanted to ask a few things. Um, firstly, of course, the big question, uh, how can we change that? But I want to elaborate a bit further here. Uh, so the conditions are sitting right in front of people's faces. The, the world is turning for the worst in front of their very eyes. And yet people hold on to their perspectives and ideological misunderstandings and ultimately to the notion that America uh, or Canada, in your case, all, both which are shorthands for capitalism and imperialism, um, will hold on. So how is it then that we can convince people that even if this is true, that is not in their best interest or especially the best interest of the especially oppressed and exploited folks in the global south? And then, you know, how do we show people the inequality that these folks face today? Um, I know that's another big question, but I think that it's an important one to ask. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not one that's easily answered because the argument required to convince people that a revolutionary is necessary also requires a revolutionary movement, right? Um, uh, you know, people can look at the conditions in front of their own eyes and accept them because they've been socialized to think of themselves as separated individuals. And ruling class common sense ideology makes a lot of people think that the shitty world they've inherited is the only world they can have, right? And And of course... I think also in, you know, in, in places like Canada and the U.S., the entire kind of settler population um, has, you know, has a certain ability because of the, you know, the, the history of white supremacy to th th that racist ideology has a way of like making them really cleave to the notion of, of patriotism and the country and also has has, you know, allowed them to do better than you know on the backs uh, of the people that have been historically marginalized through you know slavery and and, and colonial genocide um so there's there's a certain kind of cachet or kind of a garrison culture in that that people that the, the, the state can draw on to really convince a lot of people to to stay you know to to to, to think they have good lives right um the, the labor aristocracy labor aristocracy is another thing that exists how pe people in the working class specifically um the settler working class can can have a way of temporarily buying themselves out of the immiseration other people experience. Um, I think as things get shittier, that that kind of labor aristocracy will, you know, ceases to exist. It gets like lesser and lesser, but the ideology behind it still remains. Um, so, you know, it's at best maybe a lot of people now they'll think that you know that the 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 system as is can be slightly reformed, right? and they'll fall for that reformation kind of attitude. So you don't really convince people with arguments, at least not at the beginning. It's, it's useful to have them, but it's not to convince them. You convince them by organizing a revolutionary movement that can draw more and more people into its gamut. And so you don't begin with trying to convince everybody. You begin by trying to convince that aspect of the working class that is conscious of uh, the need for revolution. And you start with them as you know, this is the, you know, you know, Lenin's main point, but it's, you know, it's an important point everywhere. You have to first locate who they are um, and not be formulaic about it and just saying, well, it's the, this, this 
these people at this factory, right? Um, you know, in settler capitalist formations, it's going to be workers that, you know, have an experience of, you know, colonialism uh, and, the, in, you know, the history of the plantation or something like that, or even like, you know, uh, the the immiseration the of being a migrant worker or something like that. It's going to be those kinds of people that experience exploitation as exploitation and, you know, have are conscious of it that are the people you begin with um, or you should begin with or should try to find and locate first to make, to make the backbone of a revolutionary movement. And then from there, you can gain this kind of strength in order to, like, actually show that, you know, a better world is possible. Um, and the people that, you know, first join movements like this know that the world is shit, right? Um, in any case, uh, my whole point is that such a movement or, you know, movements, more than one, um, is required. Yeah, and like you said, it, it really... It- it isn't the job of those of us trying to organize necessarily to always point out to everybody how shit their lives are. You know, like you said, the people who are being exploited know that life is shit. Um, I, the, the important point is doing something about that and organizing those folks who know that something needs to be done into uh, a group or an organization that can then do something about it. Um, so, as someone who, you know, appreciates history, um, and as we're talking about the reason why we say this is necessary, that revolution is necessary, that creating these organizations is necessary, is because history has proven such. Um, and so I wanted to say that your coverage and discussion in depth of these uh, historical movements and the cultivation of knowledge that leads to these people's movements is in, it, it's incredible. Um, it's obvious that you also see the importance of historical understandings. Um, so I wanted to ask, how is it that Marxism, Leninism, Maoism centers history and understanding the lessons from it within its, you know, philosophy? Um, and then what is it about Marxism generally that allows the, or shows the importance of history and why do you feel that it is important? Um, I'm sorry, I'm skipping a few questions ahead. Uh, we're, I don't, I don't want to keep you on here for too long. No, that's okay. I found it. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, okay. Yeah. This is a big question about Marxism, Leninism, Maoism centering history. Um. I mean, first of all, I I really see Marxism, Leninism, Maoism as the current perspective of the unfolding of historical materialism. And you know, I examined this in detail with with continuity and rupture. And it represents the inheritance of all the questions about making revolution that have accrued to date uh, in that broad gamut, right? Um, it's, you know, it, it, it tells us, you know, it has a perspective about why um, socialism failed and not like the, not the, the bourgeois perspective, which is just, um, oh, it failed because humans are naturally selfish. Right? <laughs> is good in theory and bad in practice. In fact, we, we actually look seriously and what the two great communist world historical revolutions and, and those that fell under them in that kind of time did, you know, um, they, they represented a mass amount of like freedom and equality for masses of people in the world. And what Maoism, though, kind of brought brings to the table in its theorization of, of why socialism can fail is its claim that socialism is still a class society and therefore class struggle continues under socialism and not simply because there's some, um, you know, uh, bourgeois agents 
that are being, you know, uh, you know, be under the pay of the CIA or they're outsiders that are in there to ruin it, or they're the former bourgeoisie or former aristocratic elements that are in there ruining things. But more than the ideology that if we live through, you know, if we live, if we live through this world, right, we we come into socialism as bourgeois subjects who are trying to shed that subjectivity. We come into it with the perspective because we were born under capitalism and we grew up and we struggled and we lived under capitalism. We were born with that perspective and that's still going to be strong ideological way of seeing the world. And so a struggle needs to happen. And under socialism, to kind of end that perspective, to end that kind of bourgeois perspective of seeing things. And a revolution will fail, right? When, um, you know, the politics in command are those of you know uh, of, of the bourgeois road or of the capitalist road of a, of, a, of a line of thinking that wants to go back to that way even if it wants to call it socialism or something like that um but you know that 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 kind of way it'll, it'll happen it can creep in within the communist party it can creep in with the movement so class struggle still needs to happen under socialism and so uh, you know, Maoism, of course, brings more things to the table than that. You know, we get into it forever. That's why I have like a whole book about it. But one of the things when, when we talk about centering history, it tells us something about the history of revolution and why certain failures happened. And it, so it has that explanation. It can it can explain. Um, and it's, you know, its explanation is, you know, to talk about, you know, now using my 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 my, my philosophy training. We talk about inference to the best explanation. It satisfies all of the stuff that the inference to the best explanation has. It's testable because it was tested twice. We saw it in the, in the Soviet Union, and then we saw it in China, that claim, right? Um, we see it, we also saw it on the failure of the, 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 communist, uh, the, the communist people's war in Nepal, and what happened with the Communist Party of Nepal Maoist when they were right at the cusp of claiming victory and the, the way that the bourgeois within the party and that perspective took it over, they claimed it as, as Marxist as well. So we see it, it's, it's repeatable, it's happened a number of times, right? It, it also, you know, fits, it fits Occam's razor, it fits all the kind of levels of fruitfulness, it fits, it fits those kind of things that are required for the inference the best explanation to explain that historical perspective. Um, and yeah, and now I think I'm just going too far down the road of like nerdy <laughs> talk of, of uh, abduction. So I'm not going to go further there. Uh, but also, the uh, second part of your question was about Marxism showing the importance of history. Um, well, you know, this is the point of Marxism, right? It, it conceived of the science of history and society, historical materialism, and the motion of history and society's class struggle. Uh, that This kind of conception is important if we care about making sense of history and society because anything that is not historical materialist will fail to understand history and society or be a partial understanding or be an idealist understanding. Like really the most rigorous way to understand history is to use this kind of historical materialist way of thinking history. All other attempts are idealist or like mechanical or great man stories of history. And they haven't even gone halfway close to like the Marxist historiographies that have talked about history in any period of society. Yeah, and definitely uh, it, it's true to say that that is solely the point of Marxism. Um, unfortunately, there are those of us who uh, deny, um, you know, just the same as they deny Marxism as a science, deny that Marxism and history offer us anything. Um, there are even those Marxists who deny 
parts of history uh, that that don't you know necessarily jive with uh, what they want to believe or what they want to support. Um, but history is an unfolding and ever evolving thing, and it's something that we are actively a part of right now. Um, so I wanted to ask, what are some movements going on at this time that you know of that would be good for those of us looking to educate ourselves on these things that we talked about um, to follow and learn from that are going on right now? Well, I think, you know, the big ones, the big the big two that are going on right now are, you know, the People's War in the Philippines, right, uh, led by the Communist Party, the Philippines and the New People's Army and the People's War in India is led by the Communist Party of India Maoist, right? Um, these are ongoing people's wars. So much theory and thinking has come out of both of them, just like other ones, um, that we need to like be mindful of that and pay attention to them. There's also the organization towards people's wars in Afghanistan and Brazil. Both the Afghanistan and Brazil revolutionary forces are, you know, they're, they, they're really strong. They have a large number. They need more promotion because mostly they tend to be largely peasant and worker based. So their stuff is like not always translated. Right. <laughs> um, I think some, some, some websites, some great websites have done some work like Red Spark uh, has done some work translating uh, documents from places like Afghanistan, uh, Brazil, Philippines, Indian stuff for us to see to see. Um, I think it's also worth looking into just, you know, because I mentioned it in the past is the most re the recent, uh, you know, um, just the, the, the recent failure of, of, of the people's war in Nepal and the splitting of the party. Um, and also to pay attention to the fact that there are, you know, different factions that came out of like that rejected um, the, the, the reformist and revisionist line that, um, that Prachanda and Batarai took in, you know, ending the people's war. And so there's different groups in Nepal that came out of that. that are still struggling to reignite the people's war there. And, you know, around all of the peasants and, and workers that had been mobilized and were just upset with what happened to the people's war they're struggling for. Um, but there's also, you know, there's, there's, there's the, the remains of like, you know, Tico in, in Turkey and the, the TKPML and, and, and things like that that have had a people's war in the past, but still are, you know, still involved in like armed struggle in some ways. In any case, these, these are all, you know, movements that have generated theoretical understandings of reality and that we must learn from and, and, and will become more acute in the future. Yeah, so that, that's, that's probably all the time we have right there um I, I wanted to say thank you for thank you so much for coming on um i really hope you enjoyed yourself in our conversation as, as i did um and i hope listeners were able to get something out of this um but uh, you know just real quick before i let you go is there um is there anything that you would like to you know plug anything that you are working on or you know anything that you have out that you would like to advertise about uh, actually, nothing comes to mind right now, uh, just, I, because I've like, I've got a number of projects just kind of on hold right now because of the situation of the pandemic and publishing. That you know, if I mention them now, people will forget them by the time they return. I mean, I would just say, just yeah, the stuff that I've you know written already and that you were talking about is stuff that I think people should engage with and read. Yeah, and then you know, is there is there anything you would like to say or anything you would like to ask before uh, I let you go, my friend? No, I think it's pretty good. Alrighty, well, uh, again, this has been uh, JMP, also known as Joshua Mufawad Paul. Um, thank you so much for coming on. 
uh, go ahead and I don't know if you actually uh, named it, but go ahead and check out his blog, uh, MLM Mayhem. Uh, what's the the link for that? Or I mean, I guess you could just Google MLM Mayhem. Um, check that out, and then check out all of Josh's works wherever you can find them. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate you. Uh, it really does mean a lot, my friend. Um, I hope you have a great rest of your night. You too. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Listening, that was uh, my episode with JMP. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope I was able to, you know, like I said at the intro, I, I've used podcasts before for a lot of uh, substantial secondhand learning uh, and a lot of contextualization and a lot of like you know secondary questions that I get from learning things so I hope that this conversation was useful to anyone uh, and I especially hope for those of you who might go out and uh, check out some of Josh's work I, I hope it is also an inspiration to re really you know contextualize these things not in just some abstract theory or some abstract uh, writing, but to really understand that the conversations that we're trying to have and that Josh is trying to have in his writings especially is that there is a, a real uh, subject, a real world that needs help, you know. It, there is necessity for communism in the world uh, all over the world. And so uh, we can engage with theory, we can engage with philosophy, and it's all well and good, but that philosophy and theory is only as good as you know it is practicable and as it helps people because that's what we as communists we as marxists should be aiming to do um so yeah if you enjoyed that go ahead and check out some of my other work wherever you can stream podcasts you can also find my social media on uh instagram twitter tiktok and facebook at in defense of liberation uh, and if you enjoy this, but you want it maybe in written form, uh, I also do a blog, which you can find on forliberation.wixsite, that's W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com forward slash website. Uh, go and check that out there. And yeah, uh, we'll see you next time. Bye, folks. Thanks for listening. Okay. All right. Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show working towards and educating about a true people's liberation. Um, I am your host, Josh. Uh, if this is your first time tuning in, thanks for stopping by. Um, I hope you enjoy. And if this is uh, you coming back, I'm glad that uh, I didn't suck so bad that you wanted to listen to me again. Um, that's incredible. Uh, my mom... And the rest of my family uh, does not agree with you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so today we have a special one. Uh, today we have author and professor and philosopher uh, Jay Mufawad Paul, uh, Joshua Mufawad Paul, uh, also known as JMP. Uh, he has written uh, countless works uh, such as The Communist Necessity, uh, Demarcation and Demystification, and Continuity and Rupture which are three books that I highly recommend, as well as his uh, Austerity Apparatus and um, a few other works that are, are escaping me right now. Um, but go ahead and check those out. He's also a professor at York University uh, in Toronto. 
uh, I think. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, that is, this is that recording. And I hope you folks enjoy and get something out of it. So without further ado, here's my interview with uh, Jay Mufawad Paul, JMP. Thanks.